Today, we are going to be in the book of James chapter 4. We have, I think, today and three more studies uh, in the book of James. So we'll be kind of ending James as we end uh, our final Sunday with this current class of students. So it should be really good. And today's message, you guys, if you are taking notes, is the ways of the flesh and repentance. The ways of the flesh and repentance. Before we jump into things, let's pray. God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, we are thankful for our mothers. Uh, God, we just pray that uh, today, Lord, as we just set aside this day to appreciate our mothers, Lord, regardless of our relationship with them, Lord, whether it be a good relationship, um, a not so great relationship, or maybe even a relationship that isn't, isn't existing, Lord, maybe there is no relationship, Lord, we just... Uh, Lord, we do appreciate, Lord, our mothers, Lord God, and uh, for those of us who do have that relationship with our mothers, Lord, may we express gratitude today, and Lord, as we turn our hearts to learn from your uh, word today, God, we pray that you would just teach us today so clearly, Lord, that you would communicate out of your word into our lives, Lord, help us to avoid the temptation of coming to church and having your word go in one ear and out the other and it never taking any root in our hearts, Lord. We don't want that to be us, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. So would you give us that, those insights into your word today, Lord, and would you just go before us in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. So the ways of the flesh and repentance. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 in James 4, as I already mentioned, but before we actually even jump in So verses 1 through 10, you guys, I want you guys to actually look to the screen. We're going to put up Galatians 5, 16 through 17. You're like, aren't we in the book of James? The answer is yes. But in order for us to really grasp what James is saying here in verses 1 through 10, we need to understand this verse. This is a verse that some of you have heard before. Maybe you've never heard it. Maybe you've heard it, but you don't understand it. If we can understand this today, then what James is saying in verses 1 through 10 is going to make a lot more sense. So let's look at it together right here. Paul, writing to the church of Galatia, that's why it's called Galatians, says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Notice our title was the the ways of the flesh. We'll talk about more of what that means. But verse 17, he says, for the flesh... Lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, this is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you live this dynamic, if you, were, if you will, this kind of situation of the walking in the spirit, the lusts of the flesh. You live in this every single day, whether you are aware of it or not. You see, Paul, he tells us, and God ultimately is the one telling us that we are to walk in the spirit. Now, if you are a Christian, then you guys know that you have what dwelling in you or who dwelling in you, I should say. The Holy Spirit. Yes, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And Paul says that we are to walk. The idea is live your lives according to the Holy Spirit that is in you. The idea of walking in the Spirit is to live in the presence, the power, and the will of the Holy Spirit. That's the idea of walking in the Spirit. And Paul says that when we walk in the Spirit, that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now that word flesh Some of us might think of our physical bodies when we hear the word flesh, and you would be right in thinking that, but it means a little bit more than that. Specifically, what he is mentioning is our sinful flesh, our sinful nature. Paul, in another book, uh, Romans, he describes it as the old man. So when you came to Jesus, you had your sinful nature since the day you were born, really, You came to Jesus, God gave you a new nature, that being the Holy Spirit came into you and made his home in you, and now your goal should be, uh, it it automatically should be if you're a Christian, you know, sometimes we need to remake that our goal at times, but when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came inside of you and now you live for the Lord. But your old man, the old sinful nature, it's still in there. 
And I don't think this is like, you know, mind-blowing to you guys because I think if anyone really who's been a Christian for more than a week knows that you, you have a desire to do the things that please God, and yet at the same time, though you have this desire to please God, you have this, this like almost just draw towards that which you know is not pleasing to God. And that's the flesh. That's the idea of the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the things that the flesh, the sinful nature within us wants to go towards. And he says in verse 17 that the flesh lusts against the spirit, meaning like they fight against one another, the spirit against the flesh. And he says, these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The idea is this. Here's the flesh. Here's the spirit. You want to know what's going on you in you 24-7 is this. They are constantly at war with one another. And this is so important for us to understand in regards to James 4 today because it will, it will like we said a moment ago, it will make a lot more sense. Now, this verse, you guys, or these verses, I should say, they made so much more sense to me when I heard Pastor Jack share an illustration regarding these verses, probably like, I don't even know, six or seven years ago, maybe, when I had newly rededicated my life to the Lord. He described it as this. It's like you have these two dogs living within you, one being the dog of the Spirit of God. And you're like, what? The dog of the Spirit of God? That would sound very confusing if it weren't for the sake of this being an illustration. But imagine that you have this dog within you being the Spirit, and you have this dog within you being the flesh. And these two dogs are constantly fighting. But you, being the one who lives your life, you choose to feed only one of these dogs. Let's say, for example, that you feed the dog of the flesh. Then what is that dog going to do? Is it not going to be the stronger of the two dogs? Is it? Come on, give me some head nods. That's an easy question. If you feed one of the dogs and you starve the other dog, the dog you fed is going to be stronger. And that's the idea of if you feed the dog of the flesh, then that's going to be the one that is kind of calling the shots, the one that you're living in. But if you feed the dog of the spirit, if you walk in the spirit, as Paul says, then that is going to be the stronger of the two and the, the flesh will be weaker. Is that making sense? That example, like, I was just like, oh my gosh. Like when I first heard it, I was like, that, I get it. Like, that makes so much sense. And that's the idea of what's being talked about here, that we have the spirit in us. We have the flesh in us. But we live our lives daily making decisions of whether we're going to walk in the flesh or whether we're going to walk in the spirit. Give me some head nods if you're like, yep, okay, got that. Makes sense. Yes? Because I don't want to move on from this to James 4 until we get this. This is fundamental. We good to move on? All right. James 4, you guys, you should be opening your Bibles already to James chapter 4. I know it says uh, we're going to have all the, let's just stop at, uh, Isaac, we'll skip the next two slides. We're just going to stop at the end of verse 3 and we'll jump to point number 1 after. So look with me at verses 1 through 3 here. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. And we'll stop right there. We got a lot more to cover in the future talking points. But if you guys are taking notes today, this first point that has to do with pa or pages, verses one through three, is point number one, the flesh, the source of strife. So we're talking about the flesh, and what we are talking about specifically in regards to James 4, remember we just spent a little while talking about the flesh and the spirit, we're talking about that kind of flesh in this text, and James says that the flesh, the sinful flesh, is the source of strife. And that's our first point, the source of strife. Now, strife is not a word that we use commonly. I don't remember, you know, the last time I heard it in a sentence other than, you know, reading it in the word of God. It's not a, it's not a common word. But strife is the idea of conflict or bitter disagreements. And 
James says that these conflicts and these bitter disagreements, it comes from where? It comes from our flesh. You see, back to, uh, back to what we were saying, the flesh, uh, you know, the lust of the flesh is the idea of these desires of the flesh. And from these desires come strife. He uses the words wars and fights. And we might be prone to like think of like wars and fights in the sense of like army versus army, nation versus nation, like that kind of wars and fights. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about arguments and disputes. Let me ask you guys, have you ever had an argument with someone? Have you ever had a dispute? Do you have brothers and sisters? Do you have parents? Do you have friendships? If you have any of those three things, which I'm pretty sure everyone has at least one of those three things, then you have experienced wars and fights. You have experienced arguments and disputes. They happen all the time. And what James wants us to understand is that they come from our sinful flesh. It comes from within us. I once heard a story of two, two siblings. Uh, They're both about seven, seven or eight years old, and they were fighting nonstop over this invisible trophy. You're like, what? Exactly. <laughs> this invisible trophy, something that's not even real. These two siblings are just in a nonstop argument over this. And it's, and it's the flesh, ultimately. It's the flesh that causes us to have strife and to argue. And the wars and the fights, you guys, James says, it comes from our desires for pleasure. Our desires for pleasure. Remember back to Galatians 5, 16 and 17, that the flesh, it lusts. The idea is that it desires things. It, it's like the moth to the flame. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever been at a campfire, but you see, uh, you know, a dumb bug just go straight into the flame. And that's the idea of our flesh is like that. It's like drawn to these things and it wants to go after these things. It has these desires for pleasure. And the Greek word, which if you guys don't, if you don't know, the New Testament is written in Aramaic and Greek. The Greek word for uh, pleasure or desires for pleasure is the Greek word hedone. Everybody say hedone. Hedone. Kind of an interesting word to say, but it's actually where we get the word hedonism, which hedonism is a way of living. Hedone is the desires for pleasure. Hedonism is the way of living that what you do with your life is all you go after is that which pleases you. And you guys are in, you know, junior high, so you might not, you know, think of like people around you as living this way. But as you grow older, you will definitely see people who live in a way that they're just pursuing pleasure. It's what the flesh wants. This is the lifestyle that the flesh wants to live, this hedonism lifestyle. It's the life that says, I'm going to do whatever pleases me. And I'm not going to stop until I get that which pleases me. You see, the thing about pursuing a life of pleasure, you guys, is it, notice that word, the endless pursuit of pleasure. You want to know why it's an endless pursuit? Because if you live this way, you'll get that which you were seeking. Let's say it's, you know, a certain job. This job was going to be what pleases you. You get that job and then you realize that job actually isn't making you happy. And so you desire something else and it just goes on and on and on. You get something, you realize, ah, this actually doesn't please me as much as I thought. So you move on to the next thing. It's an endless pursuit of pleasure. And that word hedone that we mentioned, you guys, is the same word that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the parable of the sower, but it's probably the most famous parable uh, that Jesus shared in his ministry uh, where the seed it fell among the four different soils. And one of the soils that it fell upon was the soils where it grew up and it was choked out with thorns. And Jesus says that the thorns represent that the seed was choked out with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. That same word, the pleasures of life. And that's the way that the flesh wants to live. And here's the thing, you guys, before we came to Jesus to know him personally as our Lord and Savior and to give him our lives, we walked completely in the lusts of the flesh. We're just day by day. We weren't even aware of it. We're just living life and we're doing it in the lusts of the flesh. 
But now we are aware that it is our sinful nature in us that still back then was kind of just calling the shots. Now the Holy Spirit is in us, and now we want to we walk in the Spirit. But now we're aware of the fact that our sinful flesh you know, is fighting to get what it wants. Which, what does it want? It wants it's the desires for pleasure. Titus 3.3 tells us that, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see, it's the, it's the characteristics of the old sinful nature, the desires for pleasure, the lust of the flesh, the, you know, the, the want to go after the things that pleases us. Now, pleasure itself is not a bad thing, is it? Like, I enjoy playing golf, being outside, and the beautiful, you know, going to the beach. Like, I like these things. They bring me pleasure. But if I am pursuing these things out of the lust of my flesh, then that's when it becomes a problem. God has created, the Bible tells us that he's given us all things to enjoy. Pleasure is not a bad thing, but living your life only for the pursuit of pleasure, that's when it becomes a bad thing. And we used to live this way. We used to live in the lusts of the flesh, but then we were born again and we're given a new nature. The idea is like this, you guys. Have you guys ever cut your hand? Yes? Am I the only one who's ever cut my hand? Right? What, what happens? Like you cut your hand, sometimes you cut it, and this is, this is what often happens to me. You cut it and then like you don't even realize that you cut it until you do what? You look down, you see that there's blood, and then what happens when you see the blood? And then you start to feel the pain. And then you start to feel like, oh, wow, I cut myself. This hurts, right? And that's the idea of like, we used to, like the cut was there all along. We look down, we see the blood, and like, oh, I do have this sinful nature within me that has lust that it wants to go after. So it's always been there. Our sinful nature has always been there, but now we're aware of it. And now God has called us to fight back against it. And so remember, James tells us that our arguments and disputes, it all comes from the flesh's desire to please itself. And he tells us, you know, James tells us that we're all guilty of lusting after things, desiring or coveting. If you guys were here on Wednesday night, I don't know how many of you guys were here on Wednesday night, but we talked about uh, contentment and we talked a little little bit also about uh, covetousness. And the idea of covetousness is having like a burning zeal for something. The idea of like having something that you're not supposed to have. Coveting is like, I want it uh, because it's like the untouchable, if you will. And James says that because we lust and covet and because we argue relentlessly, he says, you don't have these things. You're pursuing these things out of lust. You're pursuing these things out of covetousness and you don't have them. He says that you cannot obtain them. You see, when we walk in the lusts of the flesh and covetousness, you guys, why would God allow us to get these things that we're desiring, that are bad for us? Why would God allow us to fly straight into the flame, right? He doesn't want that for us, but guess who does? Satan wants that for us. He wants you to live a life of the flesh. He wants you to day by day not walk in the spirit because when you're walking in the spirit, who are you ultimately pleasing? You're pleasing God when you walk in the spirit. But when you walk in the flesh, Satan's like, oh yeah, keep doing that. Keep making those decisions that are feeding that sinful flesh. Keep going for those things that God hates. That's what he's all about. You see, James, you know, in verse two, he says that you do not have because you do not ask. This is like an important principle for us to understand about prayer as a whole. That oftentimes, the things that we want in our lives, oftentimes we don't have them because we're not even bothering to ask God. And this is actually like a, you know, a verse to really like think about for a moment because it's like, man, like how many times have I really wanted something, and, you know, whether it be a material object or, you know, a, a career, or, you know, or this or that, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But I never even bothered to give it to the Lord in prayer. James says you don't have it because you don't even bother to ask God. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk about the reason why even when you do ask God sometimes, why God won't give you what you pray for. But, you know, in the context of what we're talking about, the ways of the flesh and everything, you might ask the question of, wait, but Tate, you're talking all about like the lust of the flesh. Like, why would God give us the things that our flesh lusts after? And the answer is he won't. He's not in the business of giving us the things that 
our sinful flesh is like, oh yeah, give me that. Give me that, that thing or give me that whatever. God is not interested in doing that, but God is interested in blessing us. You see, we have a heavenly father who loves us and wants to bless us with good things. James tells us earlier um, in chapter one, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that every good and perfect gift comes down from God. Everything that is good and perfect, God gives it to us. And he loves, he loves when we pray to him and ask him for things. He wants to respond. I don't know what kind of relationship you guys have with your father. I hope it's a good one. But, you know, I think of even my dad and how my dad, like, you know, I'll just like go over with my wife sometimes and he'll just give me like 20 bucks. He's like, here's lunch money this week. Just the desire to bless his son and, you know, daughter-in-law. And that's how our heavenly father is. He's like, I want to bless you, but I'm not going to bless you with the things that are bad for you, the things that your flesh lusts after. You see, the thing about our flesh, you guys, is sometimes we'll ask the Lord for something, and that thing that we might be asking the Lord for, it could be like a, a neutral or even a good thing, or obviously, like, if we ask God for something that's bad for us, God's going to be like, no, like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not giving you that. But sometimes we ask God for these neutral things. Like for me, like uh, just a, a silly example is like, it'd be cool to one day get new rims on my truck. You know, like I'd love to get some nice new rims on my truck one day. That's a pretty neutral thing, is it not? Like that's not a good or a bad thing, really, right? I wouldn't think that that's a, a bad thing and it's not really a good thing. It's neutral. It's just a material object. But here's the thing. What our flesh does is like, if, if, if I pray to the Lord, God, would you give me just, you know, would you make it happen to where I could maybe get a nice discount on some new rims uh, for my truck? That's fine. That's a fine prayer to pray. But if I start going like this, if, if I'm praying that prayer and like deep down the Lord knows what's in my heart, he's like, but Tate, you're just praying that so you could have a better looking truck than those that you know. You're just praying that so that you, you know, people will see your truck and think, wow, that guy's got a real nice truck. You see how the flesh kind of mixes into that prayer and makes it something that was neutral is now something that God's like, I don't know about that. But what is in our heavenly father's nature, you guys, is to bless us. Jesus in Matthew 7 verses 7 through 11, he tells us about how God wants us to ask, to seek, to knock, to pray to him. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. Let me ask you guys, based on those two verses, we'll look at the other uh, three in just a moment, but based on those two verses, does that sound like God is, is in the business of blessing us? It does, right? He says, ask, it will be given. Seek, you'll find it. Knock, it will be open to you. God loves to bless us. He loves to hear from us in prayer. Everything, big or small, you take it to the Lord in prayer. He loves that relational aspect with us. In verse 9, he says, Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? See, the idea of this, like, you know, you, t- you ask your dad after service today, Dad, I'm hungry. He gives you a rock. <laughs> you know, like, here you go, son. <laughs> Jesus says, no. Like he says that, or if he asks for a fish, give, we'll give him a serpent. He says, if you then, if you're evil people, you know, we're sinful people. If we know how to bless our children, which you don't have children, but you are children and you have a father. You, you, if your father knows how to feed you and take care of you and love on you, God says, how much more will your heavenly father delight in blessing you? How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, it's, it's 100% in God's nature and his character to bless us. He loves it, but he won't give us the things that we're asking for according to the flesh. And that kind of brings us perfectly to verse 3, you guys, when he says that we, we ask God and we don't receive. Have you guys ever asked God for something and you're like, you never got it? Am I the only one? I, I have done that. I've asked God for something. And, you know, I, looking back, I'm like, you know what? There was actually some stuff in my heart while asking for that, that, you know, that, I, you know, I don't 
I don't think the new rims thing is an issue in my life, but let's say for the sake of that example, that, you know, God never gives me these new rims that I'm praying a good discount for and whatnot, because, you know, five years from now, I look back, I'm like, you know what, I did have a little bit of, a little bit of pride in that request to have the best looking truck around, but what I'm saying, you guys, is he says you, you don't get it because you ask amiss. Have you guys ever heard the word amiss used in a sentence up until this point? I, pff, you, you have more than I have, apparently, because it's the only time I've ever heard it is in, in the Bible in this sentence. It's not a very common word that we use. But he says you don't receive it, that which you ask God for, because you ask amiss. The idea of asking amiss, you guys, is asking wrongfully with with bad motive out of selfishness or out of pride it's that example of the truck rims being like you know i'm wanting to have the best looking truck is that making sense yes head nods all right good so with that being said you guys james now in verses four through five it's gonna sound almost like he's talking about a new topic but if we understand what is happening in verses four through five, we'll see the link to how he is talking about the flesh's desires for pleasure, uh, which is, it brings us perfectly to our second point, which is the flesh and its craving for the world. The flesh, its craving for the world. Look with me down in your Bibles at verses four through six. He says, this is where James, I mean, James, you know, as you've been reading James, you'd see that James is pretty, pretty straight up, but this is where James starts to get really intense. He says to them, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse six, but he gives more grace. I would encourage you, if you have your own Bible and you don't mind highlighting or underlining in your Bible, I would encourage you to uh, underline those five, verse, uh, five words Excuse me, in verse six, uh, but he gives more grace. Beautiful words. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so you guys, up until this point, we've covered how the flesh and its lusts are the source of strife and the source of arguments and disputes. Now James is going to tell us of how our flesh, it wants to go after the things of the world. Now, when we use the word world, some of you might, you know, one of your minds might go to this aspect of what that word means, and then one of your minds might go over here and here. So let's make sure we're all on the same page when we talk about the world, because the Bible talks about the world. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the world, it's just talking about the physical earth, right? Sometimes, like what we're looking at today, the word world has to do with this. The definition will be on the screen for you guys, that the ways of this fallen world that stir up the desires or stir up desires, and seduce men away from God. The ways of this fallen world that stir up desires and seduce men away from God. I think it's back one more side, if we could go back one side, Isaac. Yeah, it's right there. So I encourage you guys to write down that definition regarding the world, because when we're talking about the world, we're not talking about the earth in a a sense. We're talking about the sinful ways of this world. James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Like, whoa, I don't know about you guys, but I am not interested in being an enemy of God. But what he's not saying is that to be a friend of the earth, all right? That's not what he's saying. Like, if you celebrated Earth Day like a couple weeks ago, you're not God's enemy. That's not what's being said. But what is being said is if you're a friend of this fallen world and the sinful ways of it, if you're living your life like that, you're standing in opposition to God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, you guys, look to the screen. It's up there. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the is is not of the father excuse me but is of the world 
And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So John, in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he identifies that there are these, the, the world itself can be broken down into these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And every way of the world, every sinful thing that the world tries to entice us with, you know, whether we realize it or not, our flesh wants to go after the things of the world. It craves the things of the world. We might know people who are living a lifestyle in the world, and for whatever reason, there's like this this inward drawing towards living a life like that, even though it's not of the Lord. But all of the things that the world has to offer you guys, it falls into at least one of these three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you were reading James 4 through the lens of 1 John 2, 15 through 17, you would see that we actually see these three things in verses 1 through 3, right? The lust of the flesh. Let's take that first. That James says the desires for pleasure. That's the same thing as the lust of the flesh. He says that the strife that we have comes from our desires for pleasure. It's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. He says that you covet and cannot obtain. Meaning you're, you're seeing these things that you want and yet you don't have them because of covetousness. And the pride of life, the, the wrong motives that cause us to, when we pray to God, ask amiss, to ask out of pride or selfishness or wrong motive. And the thing about worldliness, you guys, is it actually, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. You see, when Satan is coming and tempting Eve, trying to get her to eat of the tree that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to eat of, he's tempting her, he's putting all these thoughts in her head, and then Eve, she looks at the tree, and this is what it says. She sees that the tree's fruit was good for food. If you had to pick one of these three categories, what would you say good for food sounds a lot like? I would say that it sounds a lot like the lust of the flesh, the the physical body, right? She sees that it's good for food. And then it also says that she sees that it's pleasant to the eyes. Now, that one's pretty easy, right? What would that be? The lust of the eyes, right? And then finally, it says that she sees that it was desirable to make one wise. What does that sound like? The pride of life. You see, Satan, you guys, is the Bible considers him as the ruler of this world is the title that he is given. And the ways of the world are ultimately because of him. They're his ways. And he's all about us going after the things of the world because when we go after the things of the world, we grieve the heart of God. We break God's heart. But what we need to recognize about the ways that Satan often gets us, you guys, is that he's got no new tricks He's been doing the same stuff since the Garden of Eden. So if we could start thinking more like that, okay, like, yeah, you know what? That that worldly pursuit, like that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If we could start thinking more like that, I think we'll do, I know we'll do a lot better of resisting him and fighting back against his temptations and his schemes. And in light of all these things regarding the world and how how it tries to lure us in, away from God. This makes sense why James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity is another word that we don't use very often, but the idea of enmity with God, you guys, is it's, it's active and hostile opposition to God. It's to stand in the face of God. It's to oppose him. It's to withstand him. I, uh, growing up, one of my friends, had this, he had a very interesting relationship with his parents. And I remember this one time, and it happened not super often, but it happened more than once, that his parents told him to do something, and I kid you not, he just stood there and was like, no. I don't know about your household, but that, is, that will not fly in the household I grew up in. But that's, that's almost the image we get of enmity with God, you guys, is to withstand God to his face. Say, if you're going to be a friend of the world, you are going to withstand God to his face. 
I am not interested in doing that personally, and I hope you're not either, because I, don't, I do not want to be an enemy of God. And in light of these things we're saying about the world, you guys, it, it actually makes sense why James in verse 4, doesn't it sound like kind of random that he just calls them adulterers and adulteresses? Like it's like, whoa, like where did that come from, James? But with what he's talking about, friendship with the world being enmity with God, it actually makes sense. You see, was he, was he calling them out because they were like actively like cheating on their spouses? Maybe there were some people in the church that were doing that, that needed to be rebuked. But more so, what I think he's talking about here, you guys, is the concept of spiritual adultery, that they were guilty of committing spiritual adultery. And this idea of spiritual adultery is actually something we see all over the Bible, but especially in the Old Testament. But for us being New Testament believers, what it looks like for us, you guys, is that we are in a relationship with God. If you are a Christian, you have an ongoing personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're in a relationship with God. But when you go after the things of the world, it is like you are cheating on God. It's like you're being unfaithful to him. That's the idea of spiritual adultery. And like I said, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, we saw them do this time and time and time again. They w- God was their God. They were his people. And yet they would go after idols and they would commit adultery against him. Jeremiah 3.20, God says that surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. You see, the Bible teaches us, you guys, that God is a jealous God. And you know, when we hear the word jealous, oftentimes what we think of is only the negative side of jealousy, the envious side of jealousy. But there is a positive jealousy. Like there's a healthy sense of jealousy. Like for instance, on Friday night, uh, my wife and I and some friends, we went to uh, the angel game. Now I want you to imagine that if I'm at the angel game with my wife and I go to like, let's say I go to get us some nachos and I come back and there's this guy who's like, I could see he's like bugging my wife. He's like talking to her and she's like, what are you doing? You know, but I come back and I see that. I'm like, what in the world is this guy doing? Why is he talking to my wife? Right? It's that healthy sense of jealousy within me of like, that's my wife. She is my wife. Like, why are you, why are you saying anything to her, homeboy? Like, you know, and that's, it's that healthy jealousy. That's not a bad thing to feel that way. You should feel that way, you know, one day when you do get married. You should feel that way about your spouse. And God is a jealous God, you guys. When he sees the world, you know, trying to entice us, and even, you know, when he sees us being enticed by the world and going after the things of the world, he's that jealous God in heaven that's like, wait a second, that, that's my bride. The Bible says that we're the bride of Christ. That's what, why, you know, it's the idea of spiritual adultery. Is that kind of making sense? Spiritual adultery? Yes? God is a jealous God, you guys. He, he doesn't want 80% of you. He doesn't want 85. He doesn't want 90. He doesn't want 95. He doesn't even want 99% of you. You know what he wants? He wants 100% of you. He doesn't want to have this relationship with you where you're giving him, you know, you're straddling the fence, as it were, of like the world and God on one side, and you're 50 in, 50 out, or even 99 in and and 1% out. He says, no, I want it all. That's the idea of what he means by spiritual adultery. And guys, unfortunately, because of our sinful flesh, because we are often not walking in the spirit, we are, we are often guilty of committing spiritual adultery. But what I love is where verse 6 comes into play. Those five, five words I encourage you to underline. But he gives more grace. That though we are guilty of walking in our flesh and in the ways of the world, you guys, God gives us more grace grace. And I think these are some of the most comforting words in the entire New Testament and Bible, quite frankly, that despite all of our failures, despite all of our faults and our wrongdoings, despite us falling flat on our face because we fell into sin or we, we tripped into sin, we jumped into sin rather, that God has more grace for us, that he has enough grace 
to continue to pick us back up. Man, I am thankful for that. I hope that you are as well. But what, what James is not saying by saying he gives us more grace, and what I'm not saying by agreeing with what James is saying, is that more grace gives us a license to sin. That is not how we can think. The Bible teaches against that. Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, Paul the Apostle, you guys, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin, continue in sin, that grace may abound? Meaning, since there's so much grace, should we live in sin? And he says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, the abounding grace of God, you guys, I want you to write this statement down. The abounding grace of God does not give us freedom to sin, It gives us freedom from sin. The abounding grace of God. We don't see God's grace as like, well, God's just going to pick me back up again. So like, who cares if I sin? If you think like that, I would say that you need to check your heart because that's how someone who deceives themselves into thinking that they're a believer in Christ thinks, but isn't actually a believer. A true believer recognizes that God does have abounding grace for all of our faults and our failures. But because of his abounding grace, we don't want to continue failing. We don't want to continue faulting. You see, I love that, that God's, there's plenty of grace for us, but we don't take advantage of it. But who does God give more grace to? Leads us to the end of verse six. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, he gives more grace to the humble, the one who is, the idea is low in spirit, whose heart is bowed before him, not the one who comes to him in pride and arrogance. The Bible tells us that he resists that man. He resists him. He opposes him. And this leads us into our final point for today, you guys, which is point number three, humble repentance. Humble repentance. This will be where we wrap up our study today. And we haven't read them yet, so let's go ahead and look at verses 7 through 10 and read it together. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. What does James tell us here about humble repentance? He says, submit to God. The idea of submitting to God, you guys, is the denial of your flesh, the denial of yourself and the things that your sinful flesh wants to go after, saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to willfully choose to obey God and to do things his way. It's the mindset of God, I don't want to live this life my way. I want to live this life your way. That's what it means to submit to God, to submit to his will. And remember what James says in verse six, that God resists the proud. The thing about pride, you guys, which is the same word for proud, the thing about pride and submission is they don't, they don't happen together. If you're prideful, you won't submit. If you're submitting, you're not doing it in pride. You're doing it in humility. And so submission, you guys, when, when James says submit to God, is an act of humility. It's, God, I'm not going to do things my way. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to obey you. And this is exactly what we've been talking about. The denial of our flesh, our sinful nature, so, and, and all of its desires and our, its lust so that we can be obedient to God and walk in the Spirit. And James says, he says that we are to resist the devil and knowing that when we do resist the devil, that he will flee. The idea of resist, you guys, that word is actually a military word, which means to fight back. We fight back against the enemy. You see, the enemy, the Bible tells us he's, 1 Peter 5, 8 says that he's always looking, he's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's always looking for what Christian He's, he's actively destroying non-believers because they don't, you know, they haven't even come to Jesus. But even for Christians, he's actively looking, who can I destroy today? 
But James says that as we resist him, that he will flee. He'll move on. James says, draw near to God. This is such a good word for us to think on today. He says, draw near to God. And when we do, it says, God will draw near to us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that, you guys, because as we seek the Lord, do you guys want to be close to God? Yes? If you're a Christian, I hope you want to be close to God. That should be the chief desire of your heart. God, I want to be, I want to be close to you. And when you seek to be closer to the Lord, you want to know what God does in response? It says that he draws near to you. You seek him, he seeks you. He responds in that way, and I love that. He doesn't watch us just struggle to get to his presence. No, rather, he sees us seeking him, and because he desires relationship with us, you guys, that's why he responds in coming closer to us. But here's the thing, you guys, because God is so holy, because he's so clean, because he's so pure, James tells us that if we're to draw near to God, we do it in submission, we do it in humility, but also we do it in repentance of the ways of our flesh and brokenness over our sinful ways. Doesn't it seem kind of intense for James to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn, he says. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's like James, if he were to walk into the church and everybody's laughing and, you know, smiling and having a good time, and James knows those who he's writing to are friends with the world or are walking in the ways of the flesh, he's like, what is everybody laughing about in here? You guys are walking in sin. Why is nobody broken over their sin? I'm not saying that of you guys, but I'm saying imagine James walks into a church like that. That's basically what he's saying. Like, you need to be broken over your sin. You need to feel that in the depth of your soul that when you commit sin against God, that it's not, it's not like, a, oh, no big deal. No, it's a huge deal. You've offended God. Now we recognize, back to that verse 6, those comforting words, that there's more what? There's more grace. God is abounding in grace. But we don't come to God you know, with in, in an attitude of pride where there's sin in our heart and sin in our life that we're not willing to repent of. That's the one that God says, you know, come back to me when you want to be humble because <laughs> he will resist the proud, but he will give grace to the humble, he says. Our carelessness and our casualness about sin in our lives, you guys, it should be turned into brokenness and into sorrow. We need to feel that. We really do. Now, here's the thing about grieving over your sin. You don't stay there, but you do need to grieve over your sin. You don't stay in the grief because the Bible says that when we, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we need to feel the grief of our sin. We need to feel the grief of grieving the Holy Spirit and we confess it to the Lord and we, we come to him in humble repentance. And when we come to God in humble repentance, you guys, I love this. When we come to him in humble repentance, it's as though God says, you know what? I got more grace for that. I got more grace for the one who wants to come to me humbly and in repentance. But the one who comes to him in pride and like, hey God, uh, I sinned sorry. And like, have you ever gotten a half-hearted apology like that? I'm like, I get those apologies. I'm like, get on my face. Like, come back when you want to actually apologize. And God, God's not saying get out of my face, but he's saying, I'm going to resist the proud, but I'm going to give grace to the humble. I'm going to give grace to the one that comes to me humbly and in repentance. And our final verse, he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The idea of humbling ourselves, you guys, is to, is to grieve over our spiritual unworthiness. It's to grieve over our sin. And what does God respond in doing? By lifting us up. God will honor and raise 
the dignity of the spirit, the, excuse me, the dignity of the spirit of humility. The, the spirit that is broken before him, that is bowed before him, and it's like he picks that spirit up and is like, I got more grace for that. So today, you guys, we want to come to God in humility, and we want to be broken over our sin. Knowing that God, he will respond by drawing near to us and will build us up in his way. Uh, can we go to the last slide, Isaac? This Psalm 51, you guys. Psalm 51, 16. All of, if you're taking notes, I would just encourage you to write down Psalm 51 and read the whole psalm on your own. This is a psalm of David. Some of the psalms are of David. Some of them are not. This happens to be one of them that is of David. You guys know that in the King David... The one we look at in the Old Testament who was like just this stud, like loved the Lord. God said, he's a man after my own heart. Did David not really mess up? You guys know that? David, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murder with Bathsheba's husband once he realized that he made Bathsheba pregnant. He had her husband killed. And David had not repented of this sin until Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him and helped him understand, oh yeah, I've sinned against God. But when David realized that, he writes Psalm 51. And this is why I would encourage you to read the whole psalm on your own. But this verse, I think, sums up what we're talking about, humbly, humble repentance. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And worship team, you guys can make your way on out. See, David says, the spirit that is broken, the heart that is broken and contrite, that is grieving over how it has sinned against God, God will not turn that one away. He will not despise that. What does it say in James? It says that he will resist the one who comes to him in pride. But the one who comes to him in a spirit of brokenness and grieving over their sin, he's got more what? He's got more grace. And today, you guys, you know, I don't know what your, what your walk with Jesus is like day by day. I don't know if there's any sins that maybe need to be repented of. Maybe there's not. Hey, if there's not, awesome. Don't have to, like, force yourself to repent of sin you're not walking in. That's what legalism will make you do. But today, I want to give you guys a moment, and the worship team will kind of just give, you know, we'll take a quiet moment, and they'll play a melody in the background. But I want to give you guys a moment, and Isaac, we can hit the lights, where you just, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes right now. And I pray that you would take this seriously, that you would just ask the Lord to search you right now. And if there's any wicked way within you, that you would feel the brokenness over it, that you would feel the grief over that sin, that you would ask God for more of his grace, that you would humbly repent. And I just want you guys to take 30 seconds to a minute right now. I'm gonna get off stage and you're just gonna have that moment with the Lord right now. Just in, in this quiet time, you and him, have that, have that conversation with him. Maybe it's a, Maybe for some of you, it's a long-awaited conversation that's been needing to happen for some time.